Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's our money issue, a look at money matters, large and small. We'll begin in Pennsylvania, where some decades back, what was then home to America's mighty steel industry became the heart of the Rust Belt. Thousands of good jobs disappeared. But now, Lee Cowan tells us the Lehigh Valley is one of many places across the country that may be getting a second chance. Every time you buy something online, you start a chain reaction that ripples out from giant buildings like these, where hundreds or even thousands of people pick and pack your products. And yet... Anytime you have growth, you're going to have ramifications. Nothing comes without some level of cost. How e-commerce is beginning to reshape the American landscape. Coming up... On Sunday morning. From 9 to 5, to Grace and Frankie, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin are longtime collaborators and two of Hollywood's most bankable stars. Tracy Smith catches up with the dynamic duo. Because we are sick and tired of being dismissed by people like you. Mic drop. Seems everything these two touch turns to gold, especially the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. But their careers are more about love than money. She gives all her money away. I mean, this jacket, I've seen this at least 10 times. <laughs> Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda on their long-running show and their forever friendship ahead on Sunday morning. In Britain, they're known as The Firm. And like many a storied company, Mo Rocca tells us the royal family is bracing for still more changes ahead. The queen turned 96 just a few days ago. She's been on the throne for 70 years. When the queen goes, there's going to be this massive sort of national nervous breakdown, right? Looking back at a quarter century of turmoil and scandal, and ahead to King Charles and Queen Camilla later on Sunday morning. Luke Burbank catches up with a YouTube child star with billions of views and a fortune to match. Seth Doan meets some German wine sellers, turning disaster into dollars. A look at America's daycare dilemma and honest-to-goodness home cooking delivered right to your door. On this last Sunday morning of April, it's The Money Issue, and we'll be back after this.
were once home to giant industries fueling the American dream. Changing times brought changing fortunes. But now, as Lee Cowan explains, these towns are hot spots once again. Bethlehem Steel. It casts a long shadow over Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley. Those are the blast furnaces. They remain, even though they went silent more than 20 years ago. When the mill closed, it took a big chunk of the region's high-paying blue-collar jobs with it. And the news at the time made it sound very final. The mill workers call this making metal, and they've been making metal this way here in the valley for almost 150 years. No more. But back then, no one envisioned e-commerce. The demand for next or even same-day delivery has dumped huge challenges on the steps of brick-and-mortar stores, but it has also created a demand at these huge, job-hungry distribution centers. When people get on their iPhone and they order every imaginable product to show up at their doorstep, it's not being brought there by magic. It takes, quite frankly, an army of people to do that. Today, there are almost as many warehouse jobs in the region as there are manufacturing positions. That's a big milestone, says Don Cunningham, president and chief executive of the Lehigh Valley Economic Development Corporation. From a purely economic standpoint, for high school diploma or less workers, it's created something that, quite frankly, hasn't existed in this area since the days of cement mills and slate quarries Mm -hmm. and steel mills. Nationwide, Amazon alone has added more than 500,000 jobs just since 2020, making it the country's second largest private employer, just behind Walmart. Most e-commerce warehouses also offer benefits and wages pushing 20 bucks an hour which effectively makes that the minimum wage, at least around here. We say anybody that wants a job, there is a job for you in that sector. That said, Susan Larkin, vice president of Allied Personnel Services, warns that while the money may be good, warehouse work can also be pretty grueling. They look for warehouse athletes. That's a term, warehouse athletes? That's a term, that they consider their employees warehouse athletes. So you know going into that role, it's going to be a physical job. Long hours with often rigid quotas make for a pretty high turnover rate in these jobs. But shortening supply chains is now the name of the game, with nearly all retailers competing for warehouse space all over the country to fuel their own online sales. This is population density across the U.S. Going to layer on distribution centers over 250,000 square feet. Gosh, it's everywhere, isn't it? When you break it down by market, you can see places like Dallas, Inland Empire in Southern California, Chicago and Atlanta. We're seeing record spending. Adrian Ponson analyzes industrial real estate for a company called CoStar. He says all told, nearly 2 billion square feet of new warehouse space has been built in this country in the last five years. That's equivalent to about 33,000 football fields worth of distribution centers. A recent Amazon facility that was built on the site of a former GM assembly plant in Wilmington, Delaware, is the largest commercial structure that's ever been built in Delaware. We're at an inflection point, and we're fighting back. Back in the Lehigh Valley, County Executive Lamont McClure met us in the middle of what he fears is now in jeopardy, the region's rural character. 
we admire the folks who are working hard in these warehouses. And we don't want their jobs to go away. What we're saying is we don't need any more. You're done. We're done. He knows he can't match the deep pockets of a UPS or a Target, both of which have a pretty big footprint here. But he's still trying. He spent $12 million of the county's money in the last four years buying up parcels of farmland in order to preserve them from warehouse development. And in the process, he hopes, help clean up the air, too. It's dangerous and it's scary and our folks have just had enough of the truck traffic. And Uh, noise. Yes. There's a lot of air pollution in the Lehigh Valley. This is Main Street, a two-lane road through historic downtown Bethlehem. Trucks often use it to get to the nearby highway. That spike right there was just from that big white 18-wheeler that just passed. Brina Holland is an associate professor at Lehigh University who's been measuring the amount of black carbon particles in the exhaust from passing trucks. Here she says it's particularly concentrated. What we're trying to do is measure lung-level episodic exposure. So what people are exposed to on the street... Just walking by. When, they're, when the trucks are driving by. Still, with all that increase in traffic, does come an increase in jobs. The Lehigh Valley is one of the few Rust Belt areas to have actually grown instead of dwindled. For Don Cunningham, that's a win. But this area knows perhaps better than anywhere that even the best booms generally have a bust. Life is an evolution and economies are an evolution. And I think anybody who builds an economy thinking it's going to be that way forever is a bit foolish. Things are always changing. YouTube launched nearly 20 years ago with the motto, Broadcast Yourself. Millions have, and some, like the family Luke Burbank introduces us to, have made millions doing it. It's a typical Sunday afternoon for the Kaji family of Honolulu, Hawaii. They're playing a game, recording it on mom's phone, having fun. But what's not typical is that when they're finished, turn around. They'll send the video to a production team in Houston who will edit and package it as part of a multi-million dollar kids entertainment empire. Welcome to Ryan's world. Their content on YouTube gets billions of views per month. They've got a TV show on Nickelodeon. And of course, the licensed toys. So many toys. I forgot to go grocery shopping. All of it generating, by some estimates, over $25 million a year, making the Kajis some of YouTube's highest earners. Hi, Mommy. And it all started out more or less by accident when Ryan was just three. When I first put up the video, I didn't think anything of it. Luann Kaji is Ryan's mom. And I tried to share it with my friends and family because, you know, we both have a lot of family members outside of U.S. It's a dog! But today, that video meant for relatives has over 52 million views. Did you have any theories as to why it was that these videos that you were making were so popular? 
I think the authenticity is definitely the number one factor. Probably mostly because we film at home and we don't have script line by line. Before long, Luann and her husband Sean had quit their day jobs to start a family YouTube business. Which eventually led them to Carrie Tucker. We take the world's biggest YouTube kid stars and turn them into global franchises. Tucker is the chief marketing officer at Pocket Watch, a sort of old school Hollywood studio system for a very new school kind of content. This generation, this generation alpha, only knows a world with YouTube and mobile devices. The way we think about it is Pocket Watch wants to be everywhere the kids are. Tucker has helped inflate the Kaji's brand, literally. Brian! From the Macy's Day Parade to toy aisles everywhere. Is this sort of like the Wall of Ryan <laughs> merch? Uh, no, the Wall of Ryan would be much, much bigger. Um, you might think a kid with his own line of toys and more daily viewers than most TV networks let it go to his head. But it turns out Ryan is just like lots of other 10-year-olds. Hi, Luke. Mostly, he wanted to talk about the video games he likes. So you're a big, like, Roblox Minecraft guy? Yeah. Do you have any advice for me as a, a broadcaster about how I can get more people to watch the stuff that I'm making? I guess, hmm. I think you just, just like keep doing it and wait it out and eventually maybe it will blow up. <laughs> I mean, YouTube is kind of uh, partially luck, so. Partially luck? Yeah. How do you mean? Because people like have to find your videos and then it gets on a lot of people's recommended and stuff. Would you mind recommending my show on one of your videos to try to help us out? Maybe, what's, what's it called? It's called CBS Sunday Morning. CBS Sunday Morning. Can you work that into one of your videos? Maybe. Okay, thank you. This past week, workers at an Apple store in Atlanta became the first of that company's hundreds of stores to petition to unionize. They're part of a growing trend, as David Pogue reports. The number of Americans who belong to labor unions has been dropping for decades. But suddenly, what do we want? Union in the last year or so, the winds have changed. Unionization efforts are underway at tech companies like Apple and Google, media organizations like the New York Times and Condé Nast, and among grad students, delivery drivers, and baristas. Since December, when a Starbucks in Buffalo was the first to vote to unionize, Workers at 16 Starbucks stores have followed suit. Yes, they vote one store at a time. We've had a lot of uh, intimidation and a lot of efforts to stop us, but we're here. And over 200 more have petitioned to vote. And then, three weeks ago, there was the news that stunned the business world about America's second largest employer. It's Amazon versus the people, and the people have spoken. JFK 8, a massive Amazon warehouse on Staten Island that employs 8,300 people, voted to unionize. We want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space, because when he was up there, we were signing people up. Weren't there people saying, dude, these efforts never succeed? Of course, I think everybody wrote us off. <laughs> you know, everybody didn't believe that we would even get to an election, let alone win. Former Amazon worker Chris Smalls led the union drive, but that wasn't his original plan. I had no intentions on unionizing, just trying to do the right things and protect people from dying from COVID-19. In March 2020, he'd organized a walkout to protest the lack of face masks and other COVID gear at JFK 8. 
Amazon fired him, yeah. and in a leaked memo, an executive called him. What's that quote? Not smart or articulate, you know. <laughs> he soon learned that he wasn't the only unhappy Amazonian. They take care of the robots better than humans. Another Amazon warehouse on Staten Island begins a unionizing vote tomorrow. Workers Brett, Matt, and Martha have been talking to fellow employees out front. They don't give you ample amount of time to go to the bathroom. You got people that's barely making enough. We want to be able to say these things have to change and negotiate that in a contract. Smalls's strategy to unionize JFK 8 involved a social media campaign and small grassroots gestures, all paid for by donations. We would feed them, you know, pizza, catered food, soul food, different cultural food. That's what the union represents is, you know, taking care of one another. Amazon fought back hard using the standard union-busting playbook. It spent over $4 million on consultants and required every employee to attend anti-union meetings. They'll say, oh, this organization, they're not going to do anything for you. They're just going to take your money. And um, by the way, they might make you go on strike. You might not receive any income for that period. Ruth Milkman is a labor expert and professor at the City University of New York. It can be very intimidating and very effective. But not this time. So I think what you're saying is you succeeded because you were smart and articulate. Pretty much. <laughs> Amazon declined an interview, but told us in a statement, we don't think unions are the best answer for our employees. Our focus remains on working directly with our team to continue making Amazon a great place to work. Amazon is also challenging the validity of the JFK 8 vote and points out that it already offers better than average pay and benefits, $15 an hour starting wage, and health insurance. But Ruth Milkman says that it's about more than dollars. Workers want respect. They want to be treated with dignity. And I think you can see that really clearly in the story at Staten Island. They're treated like machines. In what ways are these workforces and these unions different from the old union factory efforts? What's different, I think, is the zeitgeist that um, especially young workers who've lived through a lot of turmoil, they have these high expectations for what their work life is supposed to be about, and then they can't afford the rents. They might have a lot of student debt. They end up living with their parents. I mean, this is not the, what they were promised. The pandemic also created a labor shortage, which gave people more leverage and made them less fearful of organizing. Unions are cool again for this generation. To many of the workers at JFK 8, Chris Smalls is definitely cool. One of them drove by during our interview and expressed his own thoughts on the unionization effort. Um, <laughs> I won't say that word, but I guess he's pro-union. Um, Family squabbles are nothing new in the boardroom. Mix in a monarchy and you've got a genuine spectacle. Mo Rocca catches up on British royalty with author Tina Brown. The British royal family is often referred to as the firm. And the firm's CEO, Queen Elizabeth II, has been in the corner office for seven decades now. You know, we hear about working mothers. She's a working great-grandmother. Yes, she's a working great-grandmother. And she loves her job, is the truth. And she'll keep going 
to the last breath. I really believe it. It's a higher calling. Yes. With cannon fire and the release of a recent photo with two of her horses, the queen celebrated her 96th birthday three days ago, a year after the death of her husband. I mean, she made it to Prince Philip's memorial, even though she's really finding herself frail. She simply has this extraordinary ability to make herself do things. Yeah, you wrote, smiling through maximum discomfort is their most priceless skill. <laughs> does this weather make you feel at home? <laughs> it really does. As a prominent editor on both sides of the Atlantic, Tina Brown has long trained her gimlet eye on the royals. Her new book chronicles the last quarter century, one of the most difficult and at times scandalous in the history of the monarchy, now set for more upheaval. The transition from Queen Elizabeth to King Charles, how's that gonna go? Well, I think there's a lot of anxiety, obviously. The queen is a monarch, but she's not immortal. One day before too long, her son Charles will ascend to the throne. We're going from a 96-year-old CEO to a 72-year-old successor, who everybody knows a great deal about, probably too much about. I mean, there is no mystique to Charles, that's for sure. Yes, Charles. The world has endlessly dissected his unhappy marriage to Princess Diana, killed in a Paris car crash in 1997, and his eventual wedding eight years later to the woman he'd been closest to most of his life, Camilla Parker Bowles. I was at lunch a few years ago, and I just casually mentioned that I kind of like Camilla. And my friend's mother, she like shot darts at me and said, how dare you say that about that woman? Yeah, no, I'm sure. There are people who still feel strongly about that. But the irony is really, I mean, this was the great love of Charles's life, always has been. Right. And she's gone from being this, this hated figure to being actually quite beloved. And the queen very recently declared that she wanted to see Camilla become queen, which had always been somewhat in the balance. Was Camilla going to get the title of queen? Will she be known as Queen Camilla? She will be known now as Queen Camilla, which was in a way a brilliant piece of estate planning of the queen. And after King Charles and Queen Camilla, Charles's son William, then William's kids, then his brother Harry, although Harry basically took himself out of the picture after broadcasting his unhappiness with the family and decamping to California with his wife, Meghan Markle. The Queen left no doubt about their status after what's been dubbed Megxit. The terms of the exit were harsh. You know, they didn't get anything they wanted, actually. They didn't even get to keep the word royal. They didn't even get to keep the word royal. Harry was not allowed to keep any of his military uh, uh, honors. I mean, it was, you know, frankly lethal what happened. Because there's no halfway. There's no halfway. In fact, there was one phrase which really stuck out to me when it said that they would continue to, quote, collaborate with the Queen on projects. Mm. And the Queen doesn't collaborate. <laughs> She's not a co-executive producer of a TV show, okay? <laughs> she commands, right? And you better remember it. And she did. She said, uh-uh, no. <laughs> right, the Queen doesn't do partnerships. She doesn't right? do partnerships, like, yeah. no. Harry's estrangement also means there's no partnership between the two princes who've gone through so much together. Harry for William was the person who kept him grounded, who could have fun with him, who could make fun of him, you know, because when you are the future king, no matter how normal you try to make your life, everybody's talking to you as the future king. Only your younger brother can really tease you. Wow. Only your younger brother can take you down when you're pompous, you know. I'm told that William is very 
grievously sad to have lost that. Boy, of all the multiple estrangements, this seems like the saddest one. It's a very sad thing. The British monarchy has endured since the 9th century. The latest crowd might sometimes be a royal pain, but maybe that helps explain why the British just can't quit them. It's a great family saga because, you know, the monarchy is an institution, but it's built on human beings who are members of a family. And there will always be the prodigal sons and the miscreants and the sort of lovelorn ones. They are fallible. Some are better at it than others. And they come up against the hard realities of the crown. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had, and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Time for a home-cooked meal served with a side of entrepreneurial creativity. Lilia Luciano is in a kitchen offering meals to go. For Yogita Kulkarni of Dublin, California, this isn't just her kitchen. It's also her office. I get my orders in advance, mostly 24 or 48 hours in advance. And it's like dancing flavors in your mouth. Kolkarni sells the delicacies she learned to cook growing Hello. up in Maharashtra, India, on Chef. We've got generations and generations of recipes that have been handed down. Recipes An online platform which offers homemade food. I cook with a lot of love. Straight from someone else's home. Everything is made on the same day from scratch, and then the customer receives it hot and fresh. She originally immigrated to the U.S. with her husband Harsh in 2011 to choreograph and teach classical Indian dance. But when the pandemic forced her to pause her career mid-step, she searched for a way to help with family expenses. Mm. I started earning mm, mostly 300 to 400 dollars a week. I can have the confidence that I can contribute something in my house, my family, for my people. 
We really started Chef for one simple reason, and that was to help people like our parents. It comes to your door just like this. Okay. For Chef co-founders Joey Gracia and Alvin Salehi, it's not just business, it's personal. We're both the sons of immigrants and, and small business owners who came to the U.S. to build a better life for us, for their future family. My mom taught me how to cook. And they found that helping women succeed helps families succeed. And I'm part of the chef community. 75% <laughs> of all the chefs on our platform are women. We have 80% people of color. The food industry has high barriers for entry and success. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to open a restaurant, and most fail within the first few years. And that's exactly what we're trying to change. How does it work? How does one become a chef? It actually costs next to nothing to get started on the platform. So we have full teams of people that are helping these, these new food entrepreneurs with everything they need to be a successful entrepreneur. For now, Chef operates in nine states and D.C., thanks to new laws passed starting in 2019. The company is navigating health safety laws in hopes of someday expanding nationwide. What does that framework look like for things to be safe? In order to be a chef on the platform, you have to successfully pass an accredited food safety certification exam. You have to pass a, a food quality assessment. You're subject to regular food checks as well, food quality checks. So far, there are thousands of chefs to choose from, serving everything from West African to Hungarian to Burmese cuisine. But for Gracia and Salehi, their own success is just a side dish. Our primary objective here is not to actually build a successful business. It really is to help millions of other people build successful businesses. I'm, I'm very ready to try it. <laughs> and for Yogita Kulkarni, so her rewards well. come in more than just dollars. Oh my God. I just feel happy when a person is satisfied. Well, I'm very satisfied. <laughs> I'm very happy right now. <laughs> it's the money issue on Sunday morning. Here again is Jane Pauley. Time was your 80s were supposed to be devoted to enjoying a life of leisure. Don't tell that to Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. They're talking with our Tracy Smith. We're making vibrators for women with arthritis. Yes, vibrators. Brilliant. Grace! How could this not be entertaining? Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin are Grace and Frankie two feisty octogenarians who see old age not as a death sentence, but as a victory lap. I'm an 80-year-old woman, and I've earned the right to take my sweet time. <laughs> That's my girl. In the show, the two women became friends only after their husbands, played by Martin Sheen and Sam Waterston, reveal that they're in love with each other. You mean you're gay, and this is who you're gay with? And getting married. Oh, Hilarity ensues. I don't want to be alone. I'm here. But the show's humanity endures. We both have been told by women who have faced terrible things that watching Grace and Frankie has kept their head above water, given them hope. We're almost there! It's also given them a million laughs. Do we look like we're senile and can't remember anything? Where is the car? Tomlin and Fonda actually are great friends in real life but they're not exactly like the women they play. 
For instance, Jane Fonda doesn't drink nearly as much as Grace. Yeah, you stop drinking. And here's why, it's because even with one drink, like if I had a martini tonight, I would be at half-mast tomorrow. Now that wasn't true when I was younger. But as you get older, I think alcohol affects you differently. And I, I only have so many tomorrows left. I don't want to be at half-mast for any of them. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Grace and Frankie premiered in 2015 and is now wrapping up its seventh and final season, making it the longest-running original series on Netflix ever. Did either of you imagine starting out that at this point in your lives you would have a steady gig like this? No. No, I didn't. No. I was ready to go on the road again. A child was asked to describe the feeling of joy. She said it's mild and gentle on your hands. <laughs> I worry that drugs have forced us to be more creative than we really are. Back in the 70s, Lily Tomlin's Road Act was her widely acclaimed one-woman show, appearing nightly. I thought you liked that other kind of cake. That cake with the icing. Police, stop talking about that cake! When Jane went to see it, she just started working on an idea for a movie that would become nine to five. What did you think watching Lily on stage? I fell in love. I mean, I was blown away. And when I left the theater that night, I said to myself, I'm not making a movie about secretaries unless unless Lily Tomlin is in it. And we she know how that theorist. turned out. You mean she's a, a company spy? Shh, I wouldn't say that. I would just say that if you want to gossip in the ladies' room, I'd check first under the stalls for her shoes. Happy birthday, Myra. But you may not know that Lily Tomlin quit after the first day of shooting. I said, just, you have to let me out of the movie. You don't have to pay me anything. I thought I was just <laughs> awful. I said, I'm just going to ruin the movie. And then I saw the dailies from the second day because he couldn't draw up the papers quickly enough. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, and I thought, well, I'm pretty good. It's okay now. I think I'll just keep this part. <laughs> They've been friends since, together on set. Climate change has got to go. Hey, hey. And occasionally on the protest lines. In 2019, the pair, who both have a long history of social activism, were arrested together on the steps of the U.S. Capitol during a demonstration over climate change. Forests are a key ally. Turns out, Jane Fonda started making her famed workout tapes to raise cash to support causes she believed in. And so I thought, well, maybe I should start a company that will fund what we're trying to do. And I had a very smart friend who said, never go into a business that you don't understand. But there was one thing I knew, which was exercise. She sold close to 17 million copies of her Feel the Burn tapes, and she gave most of her profits away. In fact, she still does. She does that. She gives all her money away. I mean, this jacket, I've seen this at least 10 times. <laughs> still, her lifetime of exercise has had benefits beyond merely financial. At 84, she looks great. In fact, they both do. I'm super conscious that I'm closer to death and, and it doesn't really bother me that much. What bothers me is um, that my body is, you know, basically not mine. My knees are not mine, my <laughs> hips are not mine, my shoulders not mine. <laughs> you're, you're looking at somebody who's only me from here up. <laughs> oh, gross, I'm Francis. 
truth is, what makes Jane and Lily, and Grace and Frankie, work is that fake joints and all. Thank you so much. They seem so very real. The fact is, if you're alive and relatively healthy at an older, I mean, I'm almost 85. The fact that I'm still alive and working, wow. Who cares if I don't have my old joints and I can't ski or bike or run anymore? Eh. You know, you can be really old at 60 and you can be really young at 85. Health. <laughs> That's beautifully put. Why are you laughing? I just like to hear her talk. <laughs> We sent our Seth Doan to Germany, where he found this vintage story. What was it like to come down and see the wine left like this? Dude, think about yeah, how we can go on. Marked in mud, this is a vintage winemaker Peter Kriegel never wanted. This is your flood wine. That's our flood wine. The distinction is not the result of some highly anticipated harvest, but an unexpected disaster. We would have been underwater standing here. Completely. Last July, flooding rains inundated Western Germany, killing nearly 200 people and devastating the Ar Valley, a winemaking region. Yeah. You see the power of the water. Kriegel, whose family has been making wine here since the 1500s, lost about 10% of his Pinot Noir vines. We must plant it new because uh, you see it also, there's no life inside, so normally they must be green inside. Yeah. And in his cellar, 40,000 liters of wine poured out, turning the floodwater crimson. The water was also red completely. That's break my heart. What remained seemed unsellable, some so muddied he couldn't decipher varietal or vintage. But when Daniel Kohler got a look at the wines at his aunt's destroyed restaurant, he saw an opportunity. The only thing they could say were bottles of wine, and that was like the moment when the idea was born to take the bottles as a symbol for this catastrophe and sell them. Kohler, who has a day job in advertising, had the multi-million dollar idea to market this wine in a crowdfunding campaign, with minimalist photos showing off Mother Nature's unintended artistry. He convinced Peter Kriegel, and together they got more than 50 winemakers to contribute their flood wines to the effort, selling the mix of messy bottles at a premium, from $30 a bottle up to 500 raising money to rebuild and raising awareness. The R is not very well represented as a wine region in the world, and that was something we wanted to change and to take the best out of a catastrophe. When you first heard the idea of flood wine, what did you think? <laughs> During the time of the flood, there are many special ideas and many crazy ideas, but this was a very good crazy idea. <laughs> Winemaker Tanya Lingen gave 3,000 bottles after flood water filled her cellar up to the ceiling. Her son Jan took this video as he raced to plug the barrels. You're not just watching your home destroyed, you're also thinking about your business. For sure, it's, it's our income. It's not only ours, it's just from the complete area. The water come at um, six o'clock in the evening and the highest point was at uh, midnight. Wow, so it came very, very fast. Yes. Yeah. Dominic Gieler is the mayor of a no. nearby town. 
walking along the now deceptively calm river, he told us how the raging waters swept away 20 homes here, one of them his mother's, who tragically died in the torrent. I go down the street and uh, see that the house is it's away. It's gone, it's destroyed. Gone. Yeah. He blames climate change for the extreme weather that caused so much death and billions of dollars in damage. So far, flood wine has raised nearly $5 million, but Daniel Kohler is more proud of another number, 47,000. That's how many people bought the wine. He hopes they'll come back for more. It is the thing that gives people hope. So not just to rebuild it, but to take it as a chance to rebuild it better. I think um, there are many chances here to make a new start here. Cheers. Cheers. Most American families with young children spend well over $10,000 a year on childcare, more than the cost of a state college. A system Rita Braver tells us that isn't working for anyone. The parents dropping off their young children at Kitty Campus Child Care Center in Fayetteville, Arkansas, consider themselves lucky. How important is it for you to have daycare? We both work, so if we didn't have child care, uh, one of us would have to stay home. Brittany Nunez makes $17.50 an hour in a chicken plant. She and her husband, a factory worker, spend $250 a week to send baby Zania here. If it was just me paying, it'd be half of my check every week. It's hard. It really is. And it is also hard for Robin Slayton, who is trying to keep Kitty Campus afloat. Yeah, it's, it's just been a struggle. As the owner of this facility, she faced financial problems before COVID. Then when the virus hit and enrollment dropped, she had to begin letting teachers go. So I started with laying some off. Then my leadership team, I just couldn't afford the higher paid employees. As COVID started to ease up, did parents want to send their kids back? The issue was not the number of kids that we could enroll. We have a waiting list, over 50 children. Five of our classrooms are closed because we cannot find teachers. Why can't you find teachers? It is the low wages that we pay. Then we have Hobby Lobby paying $18 an hour with some benefits, and we just can't match that. In contrast to companies like the Kraft and Hobby chain, Slayton says she can only afford to pay her employees an average of $13 an hour without raising prices beyond what families she serves can afford. So she is trapped in a vicious cycle, and she is not alone. There is a crisis for American children, their families, and the childcare workers. Leah Austin, who runs the Center for the Study of Childcare Employment at the University of California, Berkeley, says many other countries offer all parents some subsidized childcare for young children. But things in the U.S. have gone from bad to worse. What did the pandemic do to the availability of childcare? We have lost about 16,000 childcare programs across the country, about 131,000 jobs. Federal emergency COVID relief funds did provide $39 billion to support childcare, 
helping struggling centers and some parents like Raquel Franklin. She works as a caregiver at Kitty Campus and as an essential worker now gets vouchers to pay for her two children who are enrolled here. But when that money runs out... If I didn't have vouchers, I don't think I would be able to work because my whole check would go straight back to them. President Biden's Build Back Better plan would offer permanent help with child care costs. But that legislation is stalled. And Mary Slinker, an essential worker in a food production factory whose four-year-old daughter comes here, says if the vouchers go... That's going to mean struggle. More overtime, less time with my daughter. But there may be even more bad news on the horizon. Kitty Campus owner Robin Slayton says she can no longer keep fighting to make ends meet. I've actually decided after 24 years that it is in my best interest of my health to put this child care center up for sale. She plans to start an organization to help daycares across the country lobby for more support. But in the meantime, if you can't sell it, will you just close it? I definitely would. And I feel bad saying that because I know the community needs it. And Mary Slinker fears the worst for families like hers. Stress, more stress, more worries, that constant wondering, is my kid okay today? In a world of electronic books and online newspapers, some still long for the real thing. For them, Serena Altschul has the details of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When the Founding Fathers drafted the Declaration of Independence in 1776, this copy was printed in Salem, Massachusetts. It was printed to convey the news to a very specific audience. It wasn't intended to survive. But it did survive. This is one of six remaining originals from that printing, and it could be yours for around a million dollars. It always gives me goosebumps. Christina Geiger is head of the Books and Manuscripts Department at Christie's Auction House in New York. She's overseeing the auction of the private collection of William Reese, a celebrated bookseller who died in 2018, leaving behind a significant personal collection of printed Americana. Items up for grabs include Paul Revere's engraving of the Boston Massacre, a first edition of the travels of Captains Lewis and Clark, and rare bird engravings by John James Audubon. When these items and about 700 more are auctioned off starting next month, it will be historic. It will be the most significant sale in its category of print Americana and travel since the late 1960s. Wow. Estimated to bring in between 12 and $18 million, this treasure trove took over 40 years for Reese to amass, all while helping others build their own collections. How important was Bill Reese in the world of book collecting and dealing? He was really the most important bookseller of his generation. I think, I, I don't think that can be challenged. Nick Aratakis leads the Americana Department at the William Reese Company in New Haven, Connecticut. He says Reese developed a keen eye at a young age. 
His first major sale was in college, when he found a rare map of Mexico at a rug auction and sold it to Yale for the remainder of his tuition. The joke now is that it was one of the rare times that Bill ever undervalued something. So he kept his diary. He we got to see a few pieces currently for sale here. Talks about Reynolds. This is the famed pamphlet by Alexander Hamilton in which he admits to an affair with Mariah Reynolds. A story you may be familiar with after its debut on Broadway. Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair. It's gone up in value about 10 times since the musical came out. Then there are the journals of a Union soldier in the Civil War. You can't get more immediate than these and more moving. For William Reese, it seems 40 years wasn't nearly enough time spent connecting people to books. Why do you think he wanted to auction his personal collection? He thought it was very important that uh, dealers and collectors are only temporary custodians of, of, of an item, that you own it only for a short time, that eventually it comes back into the market and a whole new generation of dealers and collectors have the opportunity to buy that. An opportunity to share a passion for the past. Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.